Hi, I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Garantz. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. And today, guys, we're ruining you. <laughs> you are listeners. God, you had things to say about things we've said. We're just going to yeah. ruin it all. Yes, this episode is going to be a little unusual for us. We're going to do like a mailbag thing. Just so many of you guys have written us such wonderful feedback about some of our episodes, but we can't get into it because our episodes have been so dense that we just didn't have time. Right. So we just are putting it all in one big, juicy episode of feedback. Yeah, exactly. And most of these comments that we're going to share are from our Discord channel, the Sauce Speakeasy, which is where our patrons talk about what we talked about on the episodes and all kind of other topics, politics and current events, movies, TV, whatever you feel like talking about. And some of the feedback has been so great. Um, honestly, we're not going to ruin all of it. Some of it is, most of it, in fact, I think is just great insights that we're like, wow, we need to share that. Uh, so, in fact, it's the listeners who will be ruining something. But in some <laughs> cases, we may disagree and have to ruin what you all have to say. Well, so the listeners have been ruining us. Yeah, it goes both ways. <laughs> it's a two-way street. All it's right. a multi-directional ruining. Absolutely. But as excited as I am to jump into this, because we have awesome listeners and they have provided awesome feedback... We'd got to do our check-in. Maya, I want to know what you're drinking. I saw it looked like a little whiskey, maybe an old-fashioned. What are you drinking and how are you doing overall? You know, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm just tired and today just was stupid and I'm fine and it is what it is. That's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, I'm drinking some Rowan's Creek bourbon with some tea back. And I'm just drinking some bourbon neat, my friend. Oh, that is nice. what I'm drinking today um, because I didn't really have time to make a cocktail and I didn't really have the the spiritual energy to make a cocktail. <laughs> um, so, Are you yeah. still recovering from like the past month and a half of like working oh, your ass off to put a show on? I think that it wasn't just a month and a half because for the entire eight months before between the film that I was finishing and getting off to film festivals mm -hmm. and the show that I just put up, it's been kind of nonstop since last March. And then we include some kid health stuff in there. And that's just a relentless year. So yeah, I think I'm totally recovering from that. I'm getting ready for a performance in three weeks as well. So it's not stopping. I would like it to stop. <laughs> Um, and you don't, uh, no, you yeah. don't want it to stop because you don't want people to not be interested in your work. You know what? But I feel like I do all this work and still people are not interested. You know what I mean? So oh, it's like, I you put just all had this a effort. show go up at an you art know, museum. Yeah, but who's written about it yet? Okay. Um, <laughs> whatever. Actually, you know, I do want to share on the Discord links to a couple of the videos because I have this one, I, I hope. I'm not mentioning it again, uh, but I have this one that connects the most famous image of Louis Pasteur with sheep to sex and Jesus and <laughs> pagan histories and vaccine hesitancy and politics. 
and it gives me pleasure. I don't know if it's going to give anyone else pleasure, but I it mean, gives me a lot of pleasure. <laughs> I think I, I think if people enjoy our podcast, I hope that they would get pleasure from such a video. I think so. So I'm going to share it on the Discord for our listeners who are members of our Patreon, patreon.com slash sauce podcast. <laughs> if anyone wants to check it out and become a member who isn't That's already. right. That's right. And uh, yeah, I'm, and I have something that I'll bring up after you check in with me. I have a couple of things to say. Okay. But first, how are you doing and what are you drinking? I'm doing great. I'm drinking Campari soda. Okay. In part because I enjoy a Campari soda. It's a very nice drink. But also because I recently discovered that we have two full bottles of Campari in our liquor cabinet. Oh my God. This keeps happening. But this case, the last time it was creme de coco. And, you know, you you surmised that the reason I had two bottles was because I had bought it to make some particular cocktail and then forgot I had it. And then was going to make another cocktail that included it, not realizing that I had one, went and bought a new bottle. That's a very plausible explanation. Yes. It's not actually the truth of it. Um, <gasps> The the truth is I bought creme de coco because I like to have creme de coco in my liquor cabinet. And I bought another bottle because we were having a cocktail contest for like a Christmas party. Okay. And I the cocktail I was making, the recipe I made up involved white creme de coco. And I was concerned that my bottle didn't have enough. So oh, I went I see. and I bought a whole new bottle. And I don't even know if I wound up using it in the cocktail or I didn't use very much of it. So then I had like basically an almost full bottle and then like I have a bottle left. So it was deliberate. I now realize looking back. But I did finish one of those. The Campari thing was just a straightforward like we put on the shopping list Campari and went and bought it and then like forgot to check it off the Take list. Take it off. It's like, a, the you yes. know, like the Alexa shopping list kind of thing. And I um, have done that. Yeah. Just didn't realize, then saw it on the list again, went and bought it. So I'm making it my mission to finish one of them, you know, because it's just, it's untoward. It's, it's inappropriate. You can't have two full bottles. It is inappropriate, but it's also kind of the wrong season. Yeah, I guess it is sort of a summery kind of thing. People yeah. associate it with summer. I don't necessarily feel that way about Campari. I do think I'm drinking it after dinner right now, which is like oh, it's an aperitif. Oh, very digestif. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's supposed to be an aperitif, so I'm definitely doing that part wrong. But whatever, I like it. Well, I just have a couple of things to share. Yes, please do. One is that Beyonce did not get awarded Album of the Year at the Grammys for Renaissance. She did break the record for the most Grammy wins ever, mm -hmm. but all of those Grammy wins over the year have been for smaller genre categories. And she has never won Best Album of the Year, and I think we all know that it's just horseshit, and I'm still so angry all day. And I was... <laughs> Really, I knew it was coming. Like, and I don't even care. I'm not watching the Grammys. I don't like most nine tenths of the people who are nominated. I'm like, I don't even fucking know who you are. Like, mm -hmm. not into it. But Renaissance is such an extraordinary achievement from a woman who started as a pop princess. And then especially with her last three albums has become this like 
artist, like a great artist. Mm -hmm. And there are problems with Beyonce. I mean, Beyonce is all capitalism. She's like the avatar of capitalism. She absorbs, she's like the Borg. She absorbs everything and makes it capitalist candy. Like there are ways to debate what she brings to society in terms of how she just absorbs everything and produces and and is this you know capitalist producer but it is the greatest album of the year and a major musical achievement and it didn't win album of the year and fucking harry styles won album of the year yeah, but if let me just ask you this if the grammys were to actually honor the album that was the best album of the year would they even be the grammys this is the question and it's true, but I feel like I think it's because Beyonce is so commercially a star. Right. Because not only is her work the best music of the year, she also made the most clickable, like impacted broad pop culture. Like she's doing it all. Yeah. Like you can't deny her. Because she's making the most popular, well, the saleable Grammys thing. Grammys denied her. They had but no that's what I'm saying. They it. seem invested in denying her. And it's just totally fucking racist and sexist. Probably, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just still really <laughs> irritated about that. Because she's like, it's not like I'm mad because they didn't give like my great indie rock experimental, like contemporary, no, I get atonal you. music, best album of the year. Right. I just feel like by every metric they're supposed to give a shit about, even metrics that I think are bullshit, she still dominates. And yet they cannot take it. They cannot give it to her because the Academy is still a bunch of old white men. They're jealous. They are. They cannot acknowledge <laughs> her greatness because they're racist and sexist. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to argue against that. So speaking of racist and sexist people, I just have one more brief story, which is that I posted for the Plague Archives, which I'm back to posting on because the show is up, this map of tuberculosis deaths from the 1930s that was used for city planning. Because basically what cities would do is they would um, only allow Black people to live in certain very tight quarter neighborhoods. And then when diseases would happen in their, those neighborhoods because they were overcrowded and had no ventilation and whatever, so the Jews too in New York, mm -hmm. um, they would then go, oh, well, we better just tear down that neighborhood. So I just posted this, this thing. And this troll totally was like, yeah, it's really important to know this, but Black people are not oppressed now. And it became this whole thing. And I just had no, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to deal with a troll. I'm really bad at dealing with trolls. What did you do? You responded to him? Did you yeah, try to say, like, I'm sorry, but you were mistaken? Black people are in fact oppressed now? No, <laughs> I was like, oh, you, you have problems with acknowledging systemic racism, you know? And I was like, look at this paper on systemic, look at this thing on systemic racism. Mm -hmm. How about these 20 links? And, you know, one of our great listeners, JP, mm -hmm. was like, are you sure that this isn't just some automatic bot? And I was uh -huh. like, no, it's, it's an actual person. <laughs> 
And then he, I'm sorry, it just makes me laugh so hard because it's exactly the tack I should have taken. He said, I think the most salient response would be to ask him how much research he's done on why his dad never loved him. <laughs> and then, you, you could say yeah, that. Yeah, that's how you deal with a troll. So that's you can. You, you have to be prepared, though. If you say that to a troll, I love that it's cracking Maya up. <laughs> Ask him if he's done research on why his dad never loved him. That's very funny. But also, typically in my experience, okay, when you respond to a troll who comes at you in all seriousness with a flip comment, <laughs> they will accuse you of doing that because you don't have an argument. They will say, uh, oh, uh -huh. yeah, see, you can't defend your views, so you just go to personal insults and attacks. I get it. I get it all the time from the liberal establishment in academia oh, okay. who don't allow you to follow any line of inquiry that might contradict their orthodoxy about systemic racism, yada, yada. And you have to be prepared that that is what he'll say. And you can right. just keep coming back with more insults and be as funny <laughs> as you want, but... You can't get baited by that. But instead, I'm like, I, I feel like convinced where I have to be like, no, I am right, motherfucker. I know more I than know. you. And that's that was the wrong move. It was the Very wrong much. move. There are different ways. There's no good way. There's no good way to approach a troll, <laughs> but there are bad ways. There are wrong ways. And like coming at them with links and information is never, pretty much ever the right way. You know, way. it reminded me of being in, in elementary school. I was always a really gullible kid in elementary school, and it felt just like that. It you're was a like, mark. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm you're totally a mark. totally a mark. Okay. I do have one more thing I want to talk about that happened to yes. me this past week. Um, Matt and I sat down to watch the movie True Romance, the okay. 1993 Tony Scott-directed Quentin, Quentin Tarantino Tarantino's penned. big break. Yes. He wrote the script. He wrote the script, but did not direct it. Um, it came up because we were watching the ending of Top Gun, and we were talking about Tony Scott, and it came up that Matt had never seen True Romance. So <gasps> we were like, well, we have to sit down and watch it. And we did. And I have to say, it does not hold up. Oh, really? Yeah, in a lot of ways. And it kind of ties back into the stuff we talked about in our Tarantino Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode. So oh, I yeah. thought we should talk about it. Yes, tell me. But we're going to make this a bonus episode. So listeners, look for that bonus episode on our Patreon. All right. So we did an episode on Hallmark movie Hanukkah on Rye. Hallmark uh, has a lot of Christmas movies. This was their big step into making a Jewish holiday romance for the Hallmark Network. And we kind of broke it down. <laughs> and it turns out that one of our listeners is a writer who has a lot to say, who knows all about writing for Hallmark. Yes. <laughs> who, like, is a Jew who writes about Jewish things. And she had a lot of thoughts and a lot of things to share with us. Yes. So Melissa had some great comments on the oh Discord. My Maya, will you share some of the highlights for us? Okay. One of the highlights for me was just she actually has friends who are Jewish 
who write Hallmark movies. And she agreed with us that ha- that they are lifeless, I'm quoting her, lifeless and conflict-free and illogical. She said, I also have a friend who tried to submit to Hallmark in the past, and they have all sorts of rules like, quote, a dog cannot eat something that is not dog food. So her friend wanted to pitch a story about a handsome veterinarian meat cute. But at the same time, writers like them because they're pay for play, which a lot of things no longer are in Hollywood with the rise of streaming. It's nice work if you can get it. So I just loved the insider perspective of a writer who's like, actually, it's a great fucking gig. You write something, they cut you a check. But yes, they have all kinds of crazy rules that are somewhat fascist. And she shared with us um, this salon essay from 2019 by Amanda Marcotte saying that um, the most, forget triumph of the will, the most insidious authoritarian (laughs) propaganda comes in the form of schmaltz. Like She she argued that the Hallmark Christmas movie is Nazi propaganda, basically. Yes. And Melissa had really interesting things to say about that in terms of that, that in the history of Jews in Hollywood, um, even the Jews who were very powerful in Hollywood didn't want to draw too much attention to themselves as Jews, not just because of anti-Semitism, but because of the blacklist, which was veiled anti-Semitism. Yeah, this is an important point because we did talk about in that episode the question of the Hanukkah movie and why it basically doesn't exist. We know that Jews are very influential in Hollywood. There's a lot of Jewish people in Hollywood. There always have been. So why aren't they more interested in making Jewish stories? And Melissa pointed out very astutely that, um, uh, that, I'll quote her, the Jews who made Hollywood what it is aspired to wasp assimilation and didn't want to draw too much attention to themselves as Jews. This is a very important point and has been an important point throughout the history of Hollywood. Uh, For various reasons, One of them being that it would only feed further into the accusations of Jews running Hollywood and controlling American culture and all of that. But other reasons also being just the drive to assimilate and blacklisting and all of these other issues. Yeah, Jews have generally in Hollywood, and I would say in America on the whole, have trended toward wanting to assimilate and not wanting to um, be too showy. about their Judaism. And about their power. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, and she's noted that in her own uh, writing, in her own pitches and having books that are currently being submitted, that she gets rejections that feel anti-Semitic coded, even when they aren't explicitly Mm -hmm. such. So quote, I don't see the broader hook end quote, or I'm not the right person for this, end quote. And one of the things uh, that she shared with us that I loved about the difference between Christian and Jewish romantic comedies, uh, that Nora Ephron, when she was promoting When Harry Met Sally, explained that in Christian romantic comedies, it's external forces that separate the lovers. And in Jewish romantic comedies, it's the characters' neuroses that are their obstacles to happiness. Fucking love that, man. That's so... Well, I mean, it's from Nora Ephron, of course. Well, I mean, queen, the queen. Um, So, yeah, I loved getting the insider angle about being a Jewish writer 
working in some of these genres, thinking about some of these things, and how it attaches to this longer history of culture making by Jews in Hollywood. So Melissa, that was fucking rad. Thank you for that. So last week's episode was on copaganda, and people had some things to say. <laughs> yes. So we talked about copaganda as in TV shows about police. We were focusing just on TV and some of the trends, tropes. We also asked listeners, what are your favorite copaganda shows? Because we won't judge you, but we will judge the shows. So we got some great responses. Now, one of the not great responses, but it's still hilarious and I have to share it, is that <laughs> on our Insta, we had our meme say, it's easier to imagine the end of freedom than the end of police. We got a response from Morse Industries USA, who make bipod spikes and universal carry clips, meaning they make, uh, they make gun accessories and uh -huh. somehow they found our fucking Instagram <laughs> post and left the following comment. There's only two possible futures for humanity in the next hundred years. One, perfected slave planet. Two, complete death of species. This is from a company. Yeah. This is like the official company account. Yes. And it didn't end with, you know, buy bipod spikes. No. Something like that. It was just like but also, they didn't respond. We're saying, hey, copaganda is this, you know, racist problematic thing. But they immediately jumped to, it's very much like what we were talking about earlier with this comment on the plague archives. The only possible future for humanity is a perfected slave planet. That's the <laughs> only way we're going to survive as a species is a perfected slave planet. So, hey, guys. Don't criticize copaganda. Do this is a bot. I think this is a bot. This is some kind of automated response because you used a hashtag. I'm looking at the hashtags we used on that post to see what could have provoked this. Okay, police state surveillance. Those are probably it. Yeah. Hashtag police state, hashtag surveillance. Because that sentiment is kind of, um, uh, it's almost like a prepper thing, right? Yeah. That's not just like, hey, loved your episode about cops. If you're into cops, you might be into the gun shit we sell. It's not a lot like that. It's like you mentioned police state and surveillance in your in your tags. So we're here. We get you. We're 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 on the same page, preppers. Yeah. All right. Really weird. Yeah. Really weird. They're they're coming so out that's of the woodwork, our Maya. That's that's the kind of crazy <laughs> comment. So let's get to the good shit. Let's get to the good shit. Okay. So on the Discord, on the Sauce Speakeasy, Cronorin is the username. Mark Lamadou is the actual name. Um, he had some very great stuff to say. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple of snippets of his awesome comments. He wrote... I have a coworker that seems to watch nothing but cop shows, gangster movies, and prison shows. Only the manliest stuff for him. But it's funny because he can't believe that other people don't watch these shows. I'll tell him that I've never seen CSI Extreme or Chicago PD Blues. And he says, come on, everyone's seen CSI Extreme. I just thought that was hilarious because I love Mark's <laughs> made-up cop show names. <laughs> Chicago know, right? PD Blues, that's very good. <laughs> um, but he goes on to say that 
just overhearing the shows coming from his phone, the coworker's phone, he's picked up on a couple of common tropes. And I love these because they were things we definitely did not pick up on or include. Number one, black cop speaks truth to white cop. There will be scenes where a white cop is trying to be tactful and pussyfoot around something because he's afraid of appearing quote unquote racist. But then his black superior or chief character will tell him, Oh, that's cute. Our sensitivity training at work. Now let me tell you how it really is on the streets with these bangers. Okay, so there has to be the black character that gives the white character permission to just be totally fucking racist. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Exactly. Oh, great. Uh, And the other trope was the, he calls it, it can happen to your daughter. And he writes, (sighs) quote, Officer, Kaylee could never be involved with something like this. She's an honor student and spends all her time at lacrosse practice. Sorry, ma'am, but she was recruited on the dark web by a predator who blackmailed her with nude pictures and got her to smuggle large amounts of fentanyl heroin into the country from the Baltic Republics. (laughs) Then she began to attend his drug orgies on the other side of the border. We see it every day. Nobody thinks it can happen to their daughter, but it can happen to your daughter. So that's, that's actually great. It's true. And, and that goes to a a bigger trope that extends beyond just cop shows, but it is this trope of, um, white womanhood being threatened. Yes. It it kind of reminds me of like the movie Requiem for a Dream by Darren Aronofsky. Also the movie Traffic, if you remember that one. Oh my God. In that movie. Yeah. The girl, the white girl, the daughter, Michael Douglas's daughter, um, she's a good girl. Her white boyfriend, like, teaches her how to freebase, like, gives her cocaine to freebase. And then the next thing you know, she's having sex with a black drug dealer for drugs. That's absolutely right. It's that's That's the worst thing that could happen. And daddy saves her. Yes, daddy you know, has to save like he, her. He walks in and she's just like high right. on a bed but having just turned these a bunch like, of tricks. Drugs are bad and they're bad because your white daughter is going to wind up becoming a whore, basically. Yeah. Oh, and also in, yeah, in Requiem for a Dream, in order to get the drugs, she goes down on the black drug dealer. It's like, wow, it's Jesus Christ. They're not even subtle about it. It's like, no. she will have sex with black men. Your white daughter's going to have sex with black men because drugs. And, and, that's, and also, but it can happen to, look at that good white girl. Oh, yeah. No, you're an upper middle it class family. It could happen to your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really well pointed out. Thank you, Mark. That is so good. Um, also, DLA had a really amazing statement that, Copaganda shows focus on a fantasy of attainable justice. Right. And therein lies a lot of their appeal. And I agree with that. Um, That even for people who are left-leaning, left of center, or very liberal, whatever, they're still very pleasurable to watch because it's not just about the assertion of order over the chaos of crime, but it's also the fantasy of justice that the people who've done wrong will be held to account. And there's a system yes. in place for that. Now, he listed his problematic copaganda faves, which, thank you. Um, and what he noted is that his, his three of his favorites, Bones, Castle, and Psych, 
uh, are all centered around characters who are not the police mm-hmm. helping the police to solve crimes. Yes, very So common. it's that particular like realm of specialized procedural body of knowledge being put to the test in the pursuit of this attainable justice. Yeah, th- this is a very common trope. Having a character who is not a cop but has some specialized knowledge, works with the police. That's in a lot of shows, which is interesting. And I haven't really taken a moment to think about what that suggests or what is the appeal of that. But it it does seem to have to do with the idea that that there's a a community effort going into this, that the police are not this authoritarian regime imposing their will on a community. They're They're a team of people working with experts, working with experts. So it can't just be that they're doing this based on their crazy shit. Like there are experts involved. Their their authority comes not just from the fact they have like weapons and are authorized by the government to use them, but also their authority comes from, yeah, they're working with experts. These are people who really know shit that you don't know. They can just look at human remains and figure stuff out is really amazing. I assume that's what Bones is about. I don't know. I've never watched it. Um, But I also thought you pointed this out to me because it it had escaped my attention. One of DLA's uh, movies that he listed was Zootopia. So fucking brilliant as a copaganda movie. So fucking right on. It's totally true. It is definitely a copaganda movie. Now, we didn't talk about movies, to be fair. We were focused on television shows. But when we get to part two and we talk about copaganda movies, we have got to mention Zootopia. I mean, I could scarcely think of a more copagandistic movie. Absolutely. And the little bunny trying to be a cop and then becomes the best cop. I mean, just come on. So good. (laughs) So good. Other great uh, responses to the Copaganda episode from Richard Silvera. He notes that he loved watching Law and Order, especially in his 20s. He calls it the thinking man's Copaganda, which is so true. (laughs) And he says, I think it was the triumph of order and structure I craved so much, uh, feeling like at that time in his life, he needed there to be some kind of order when everything else felt like chaos, internally felt like chaos. And he said, and he said, it's problematic because he was a young gay black man, but because the 20s are this time of internal chaos, there was this comfort in that kind of order. I thought it was hilarious. He goes on to say, now I get that feeling from cooking shows particularly amateur (laughs) ones on YouTube. No matter how crazy the process seems or how imperiled the cook is, you end up with an elegant dish. Order triumphs. I thought that was a very intriguing comparison and made me want to kind of look at cooking shows and the pleasures of those. Much better for the viewer and society than copaganda, plus you get cake. I, you know, (laughs) I have to just tell the story quickly. So I met this like dog trainer, like a celebrity dog trainer. And he's this really smart guy, was totally like went to good college, had Mr. Guy career, and he hated working life. And he was like, he just hated the nine to five, da da da, have my good fancy job that pleases my parents' life. And he's like, if working sucks, then I might as well have to work but have there be puppies 
And so he started being a dog trainer. And now he's like a dog trainer. So it's the same thing. It's like chaos to order, but at least there's cake. <laughs> right. Shitty day job, but, but at, at least, least there's, there's puppies. puppies. That's that's a good way to go about it. I agree. But I think it's a, an amazing origin story. I, I was yeah, such a fan of it. That is a very good origin story. I, I just really appreciated what Richard Silvera said about um, liking Law & Order in his 20s because I can completely relate to that. I loved Law & Order when I was in my 20s. I remember watching it and and like making time for it on whatever night it was on TV, you know, <laughs> and, and, and just really being into it. And the pleasures of it, I mean, it's the pleasures of the procedural on the whole. Yes. Um, yes. I remember becoming gradually aware that most of the plots revolved around trying to find ways around the suspect's constitutional rights. Like, literally, that would be the plot. I probably still is of whatever Law & Order shows are still on, where it was like, we found this incriminating piece of evidence in their home, but it's not going to be admissible. The defense lawyer has moved to strike it because we did something wrong in the search process. Right, right. It's never totally clear cut, but there's a strong argument that in order to get the conviction they want, they are going to have to use evidence that is not obtained by totally constitutional means. And they're, and they right. engage in these complex legal arguments to try to justify. And so it's sort of on the one level works as this constitutional conversation. You're like these New York judges, every episode are making judgments on like, like Supreme court level judgments, about like what's constitutional right. and what's not right. But like that's intriguing in and of itself. But after a certain amount of time, I was like, wow, this keeps coming up. And it just really seems like this show is asking me to be on the side of really resenting suspects and accused people for having any rights. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, they, all of their constitutional, yeah, all their, their constitutional, constitutional protections rights. are all just protections. an impediment to the good work that the well, police need. Well, this brings us back to Marvel to movies. This oh, brings us back to Marvel movies. I mean, that because that's something that, like, that brings us back to Iron Man. I mean, that was the whole thing that we were talking about all the time. It's like there's a rightness that's generally in the hands of this character that just goes beyond all rules. Right. But that's the fun of Law and & Order and shows like it is, like, they can't ever just take matters into their own hands. They have to right. work through the court system Within the procedural, okay, yeah, within the procedural structure. But I think that that's why then the fact that they can manipulate it, but then land on the side of right uh, can feel so comforting. I mean, it always feels comforting, like many of our listeners <laughs> have said. Like, it's comforting when you feel like justice has been served, when order has been restored. It's comforting. None of us is likely to identify as being part of the forces of disorder, even if in our lives as activists, we think of ourselves that way. Sort of in society writ large, generally speaking, we're like, we are law-abiding people. That's right. And the criminals are the bad ones and we need are them the bad to guys. be taken care of. They are the chaos agents and we need to get rid of them. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, well, there's one last thing that we got a lot of responses on, and we're going to share a couple of them with you, which is we did an episode on the first season of Mike White's show, White Lotus, which many people had asked us to talk about. (laughs) Yes. And I mentioned earlier that Richard, Richard Silvera on the Discord said that season two is much better because it has smaller ambitions. So it manages to handle those ambitions with more skill. Yes. He's, he does say, uh, I really like the way they handled the sex workers who are major characters. I'd go so far as to say, I think they learned something from the mistakes made in season one. And I just wanted to point something out in response to that. Uh, I haven't watched season two, so keep that in mind. But I did post this in the Discord. I came across this thread on Twitter by, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this name, I'm sorry, Camille Karchewski, I'm going with that, who uh, wrote this great thread about season two. And he says, as a historian of sexuality who who lived six years in Italy, I love the season two of White Lotus. And he talks about the history behind many of the motifs in it. And he points out that the location is, it's shot in several places in Sicily, but the hotel is in Taormina. I don't know how to pronounce it. Taormina, Taormina. yeah. And um, he says in the 19th century, it became one of the first sex tourism destinations in Europe. And he goes into this wonderful history about how in the late 19th century, this photographer took pictures of young men, nudes of young men, and they spread across Europe and became a hit and became part of homosexual subculture. And that made Taormina become kind of like a mecca for gay men. And uh, a lot of people would visit there. He talks about Oscar Wilde visiting there and how that blossomed into a gay sex tourism industry and then it had many very negative impacts and results for the sex workers and for the community and all that kind of stuff and it's a really interesting history uh we'll post the thread on our twitter so you can read it if you want to uh because it is really interesting but what fascinated me about it and he goes camille goes into this in the thread how many of the elements in season two seem to be deliberately referring to that you have uh, a whole gay plot that seems to be calling back to that history. You have the plot with the sex workers, as Richard pointed out, that it seems very much to be that Mike White is well aware of this history, is interested in right. this history, is right. anchoring the story and the events of season two in this location because of its history. And I think that's lovely. It just, to me, kind of highlights even further the failure of season one in that regard. Well, and that's what I found really interesting is that I thought the failures were so obvious, Mm -hmm. but people were really resistant to it. Um, Like people were very invested in White Lotus, uh, including your friend who wrote a really long thing about how wrong we were. Yeah. So it bothered us that this this attention to detail 
that Mike White seems to have put into season two, this attention to the specifics of the history of the place seemed to not exist in season one. That he sort of paints with a very broad brush about Hawaii and the Hawaiian people. Right. And there doesn't seem to be any of that real like knowledge and deep interest in the material. So my friend Jamie, he's a great guy. He wrote me this really long Instagram post about or Instagram comment about it. And he pointed out a few things that I think are definitely worth mentioning. Um, First, he writes, regarding the storyline of Kai, the Hawaiian kid whose uh, family's land was taken away by the resort. Jamie writes, there have been decades still today of legal battles over land ownership, lease inheritance, and promised land in Hawaii. Cases where families who have sat on land for generations simply don't have the legal means to fight billionaires and corporations from taking it out from under them. There's a lot of effed up stuff going on there around land rights that didn't cease to exist in the distant past. Kai's childhood story is both plausible and common, and it's even more common today with liquidating genealogy and having to prove native bloodlines to claim rightful land under the 1921 Hawaiian Homes Commission Act. So first of all, I want to concede that I am not very well familiar with that history in that present situation. So fair enough. I was asserting that the story of Kai growing up in a native Hawaiian sort of uh, lifestyle only to have his land taken away when what couldn't have been more than 10 or 15 years ago seemed to me really like ridiculous. And I'm going to grant Jamie, okay, perhaps that is not ridiculous at all. Uh, It is ridiculous for it to be happening on Wailea Beach in Maui, okay? But, like, the show doesn't yes. identify what the beach is. It, it's not really the point. It could be a stand-in for another island that's currently being developed that hasn't been in the past, although I still eh, I still have issue with the idea that they were living this, like, native Hawaiian lifestyle. <laughs> but whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. But, uh. but I, I think the bigger point I want to make, and my response to this, really, is that I may have made a big deal in the episode about the implausibility of it, but the implausibility wasn't really the issue. The issue I had was with the lack of care or interest in telling the story. Right. This story is included. Kai's story of having his family's land takeaway is included, but the show has no interest in it. It has no interest in Kai as a character, It only serves as a motivator for Paula's story. It only serves to sort of push the other characters in other directions. It's like, I'm going to mention this fact of Native Hawaiian people getting fucked over only so that you can see how it affects these white people. Um, Yeah, that's right. And also, I feel like that was the other thing where one of the things we kept talking about is like, He's trying to write about how terrible these white people are by only telling white people story. Mm-hmm. Like, how is that not working? And again, so he writes to you that Mike White, who also lives part-time in Hawaii, uh, has spoken about the ethical complexity of buying property and vacationing there. And he, you know, he he knows, like, oh, I go here and I own land here, and maybe that's slightly fucked up. And he 
he said he was not equipped to tell the Native Hawaiian story, but he could acknowledge it from his own experience of sort of waking up to Hawaii's complicated history. To me, that is such a fucking cop out. I agree. Like, you know what? I don't I don't really know about this, so I can't really tell the story. So the story I can tell is about being a white guy who realizes Oh my God, these are people. Right. Which the one white male character, the one young white man is the only one who gets that awakening at all. And he goes off and is, and it's like, that is such a fucking bullshit cop I I rather agree. I feel like if you're not equipped to tell the story, don't tell the story. Don't tell the story. Yeah. Like, I don't give a shit about like, like, you know what? I can't tell the story about race, but I can tell the story about being a white person who sort of starts figuring out that, you know what, the world is really racist. Yeah, like, it's, do it's, I want to see not that? An interesting, no, that's yeah, fucking boring as shit. It's not an shit. interesting story to to watch. And, and, and Jamie also points out that, like, he says, the vapidness when it comes to wider cultural social issues and context is kind of the whole point. Paula, for instance, called out the Hawaiian dinner performance for being problematic, not because it was actually offensive, debatable, but she, as an ultra-woke teenager, seized it as a self-serving opportunity to be offended. Nicole's on-brand dismissive rebuttal only exacerbated Paula's frustration, which is something Paula was certainly fishing for. I think that's an astute analysis of what happened in the show, but that's part of the problem in my mind. You, first of all, have only one character who's a hotel guest who's a person of color, And her whole role is to be an ultra-woke teenager who seizes on someone's real predicament, like real serious issue of dealing with colonialism as a self-serving opportunity to be offended. And, And I don't mind something that's cynical, but that is cynical in a way that I don't know how to handle because it is suggesting that White people are very bad for staying at this hotel, but we can't really get authentically into why because we're just white people who are vaguely aware of this. And the young person of color who is aware of it and is trying to do something about it is disingenuous and self-serving. Is disingenuous because she's just being an ultra-woke, especially an ultra-woke young woman. Right, like it's self-serving. She's she's do, and, and I agree. Paula is like a very self-serving character. I've argued that she is the villain of the show, but that's pretty horrible to make the yes. young woman of color the real villain of the show. Who, in her attempts to fight for social justice or her self-serving posing as uh, fighting for self for for social justice fucks up Kai's life completely. Like, she ruins everything. That's pretty grim. Yeah, and it's grim, but also, again, the grimness of that could be one thing, but then that the only hope or the only future is, again, through the young young white boy joining the natives. Like, the grim, if it's all going to be grim, Fucking throw it all in the trash. But the one breakthrough of hope is not the young women who know something, who might be learning something. It's the young white boy who's ignorant, who all of a sudden puts down his iPad. Like, fuck, yawn. (laughs) Like, next. I agree. I agree. And they just ultimately, it comes back to that attention to detail and obvious 
passion for the history of the location in season two is not there in season one. And it's like, I get it. Your tourists don't have that passion for the location and they don't see it. But you as the show creator need to see it or just don't address it at all. Why is it there? If you're not equipped to tell the story, don't tell the story. Yeah. Now, Patrice, uh, one of our listeners on Discord, also mentioned a couple of things, just that as a service worker in many different places to many different people, season one felt really real to her. Um, And I think that that was something that was really interesting that she said as a bartender, where she's had to spend time with these people, she like gets sick of them and also feels empathy Mm -hmm. for them. And so that seemed to really resonate for her. Um, and and again, when we were talking about the smallness of the character's world. Oh, the literal smallness of the resort. The way that yes, it just seems yes. so claustrophobic. You know, she has, again, people are very defending this show. Um, and she has, you know, some reasons for that about Gen Z and the kind of smallness of their worlds and why they would never leave the resort and how that was realistic for her. Um, but she ended by saying she doesn't think it's satire. She doesn't think that's its lane. She thinks it lives somewhere else in dark comedy and fantasy. I don't, I just don't see that. I don't I mean, see I can that. see it. I see it has the cringe satire element. It's dark comedy. Yeah. It's cringe. You don't have to call it satire in the sense that it's not making necessarily a bigger point about society, but rather just being like, let's look at some people who are just awful and we'll enjoy the comedy and the cringe of how awful they all are. I mean, and that's a certain kind of thing to do. But the issues of class and race that are present make me feel like, why are you putting them there if that's not what you're commenting on? If you're not making a comment and you're just like, hmm, aren't these characters just awful people? And like, if it's like a curb your enthusiasm kind of thing, like, right. it's cringy. It's also this element of, I see myself in that to some extent here and there. And, right. and, that, and that's right. a kind of humor and a kind of pleasure and a kind of cringe. I get all of that. But if you're going to contextualize it and uh, like very straight up explicitly, you're going to talk about colonialism, you're going to talk about class. It, like even, I don't know, maybe it would have been better if the stuff about colonialism had just been sort of like in the background. Like if you're paying attention, you start right. to notice these things. Right. Which is kind of like kind of like on um, Succession where you are only following these rich people. If you pay attention, you sort of notice the people who are doing things for them. You never get their right. stories. You never hear about them. Nobody is forefronting them. But they're present and it's there to sort of comment on like, yes, there is a larger world that these people live in and their actions do affect others. Uh, That almost might have been better than having the characters directly openly talk about how their uh, actions are or aren't affecting others, only for that to not amount to any meaningful commentary about that. Yes. love our listeners, by the way. Our listeners are the best. They're so smart and they're so good 
And even when we don't agree with what you have to say, we are so grateful to you for sharing your thoughts (laughs) and making us push harder and making us get right. And we love you. We have the smartest listeners in the whole world. We absolutely do. I mean, every episode, there's someone posting something on the Discord that I'm like, oh my God, we didn't think of that. I can't believe we didn't think to say that. And it's like, we could, honestly, we could do episodes every week that's just responses to the awesome things our listeners say. Now, if you want to come and say things that are awesome and that make us so excited, why don't you join and become a patron and go to patreon.com slash suspodcast and become a patron and join us on the Discord and tell us things. Patrons at every level can come to the Sauce Speak Easy. You can also reach us via email if you roll that way. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. And by the way, Kelly Mills, you wrote us an unbelievable email about Elon Musk and Twitter a while back, and that's going to be a whole fucking episode. So don't think that we never got that email. We get those emails. We keep track. Yeah. Well, you could do. Did you respond to the email? I didn't. I really should have. I'm really bad about responding to emails, but we're I we're going to respond to it in a whole. Yeah, we are. We are. You can also find us on the social medias as at sauce podcast if you want to come teach me to be a better respondent to trolls i would greatly appreciate it and you can also find me at maya garance anywhere you are looking for maya garances you can also find me at the plague archives where i write about plagues and disease and sometimes i talk about how there was systemic racism in the history of medicine and how dare i how fucking dare i No, that's important to know. Just as long as nobody thinks it means there's systemic racism today. Oh my God, you're so right. (laughs) I'm so glad that that guy came and and explained that to us. Jesus Christ. It's it's important for him to set people straight. That's right. If you want to set me straight, you can find me on all the various platforms as at Gynostar. So reach out to us, join our Patreon Email us, message us. We hope to hear from you. Until next time. Adios, amigas. Mm-hmm.